and we haven't been chasing other things like hemodynamics or, or, or something else. And I don't know what that's something else. And that's why we're still in, in purgatory, but, but somebody who's smarter than, certainly smarter than me, can maybe come up with something else that can better predict who's gonna get better and who's not gonna be, get better. Some, some global Venus index or whatever the hell it is, Mark. Yeah, and, and Steve, I don't think, to be honest with you, I don't think that's coming. And I think the problem is we've become too much in everything we do, not just venous disease, but everything too much focused on imaging diagnosis that we've lost the ability to be clinicians. Uh, you know, and, and I use the example of when I was a medical student at a great cardiology professor where we'd walk around the ward and he had a pocket full of straws and would tape a straw to everybody's fourth or fifth intercostal space looking for an S3 with the straw, which was a really cool diagnostic test because you could see it and show the medical student. But it was completely, it was a great thing to know, but it was meaningless without the clinical context of what the what was bothering the patient. And I think that's the real problem is we've, as a field, lost the ability to be clinician. Hi. I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to the Vein Podcast. Respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. I'm uh, Dr. Steve Elias, and I want to welcome you all to another Vein Podcast uh, sponsored by uh, Radcliffe Vascular. And uh, this Vein Podcast, we're going to talk a little bit, not really about the Bible, but something that's mentioned in the Bible. The uh, title of this podcast is Venus Purgatory. What are we unsure of? Uh, our panelists today uh, come from uh, various uh, places around the country and also experience. Uh, we have uh, Manu Agaral from uh, Ohio, Lima, uh, Lima, Ohio, not Lima, L-I-M-A, Lima, Ohio. Um, she is a uh, phlebologist. Uh, we have Tom O'Donnell from Tufts Medical Center in uh, Boston and Tom is sitting in his uh, Boston home uh, with his down jacket on because he doesn't want to throw another log on the fire. <laughs> Purple. Uh, Mark Meisner is from uh, University of uh, Seattle, again, wearing a nice uh, winter uh, outfit. And um, finally, Raghu Kalori, also from Ohio, from Ohio Health. Um, and uh, Raghu, you're nice and comfy in your uh, in your study there, it looks like. So guys, and Manu also, when I say guys, I mean, so purgatory, I, you know, we all had this idea of purgatory and, and according to the dictionary, it really is a, a place or state of temporary misery or suffering. So we wanna talk about some of the pain points in, uh, in venous disease today. And, and I think they go all over the place, they can, uh, be uh, technique issues, technology issues, diagnostic issues, uh, therapeutics, talk a little bit about reimbursement uh, purgatory, as well as some of the educational and uh, certification purgatory uh, that we may be in uh, as well. But I wanna start out with uh, diagnostic purgatory. And it's kind of, what, what are we unsure of? Uh, in diagnostics. I mean, we can't treat the disease if we don't make the diagnosis of the disease and of the disease that's, that's affecting the patient. So, uh, Mark, you ready for this one, Mark? 
I am, I am Steve, because you know, I, I think this is a great question because I, to me, the diagnostic purgatory, which is stuck between heaven and hell, is is particularly, um, you know, what constitutes a, a hemodynamically and clinically significant common iliac stenosis, because we've sort of been sold that IBIS is uh, the gold standard for determining it, which certainly it is, but you know, in no way does um, a cross-sectional area reduction really correlate very well with predicting symptomatic improvement. And the video trial, you know, sort of demonstrate that this, that, you know, the positive predictive value for improving with a 54% lesion or whatever it was when that is pretty much the flip of a coin. In fact, it was worse than a flip of a coin. You're better off just flipping a coin and, and deciding. And I think that to me is the, the biggest diagnostic purgatory. And, and, you know, I think like all clinicians, when we do a venogram, we sort of have a reasonable idea of whether some lesion is important or not based upon the patient's clinical presentation, their symptoms, you know, the appearance on the venogram. But it's way more than just coming up with just a threshold of some cross-sectional area reduction. And, you know, I, I think if there's one thing, and, and it's not necessarily, we're in purgatory right now, but I also think it's a great opportunity to advance is, is you know, when should we be intervening on you know, an anatomic um, compression of the left common iliac vein, which may or may not be clinically significant. And I think if we don't figure it out, it's gonna come back to haunt us in payers not paying for it anymore because it becomes abused. Yeah, no, and, and uh, that was one of the things I had written down. So I know you did not see it when you were in Seattle. And that's exactly one of the things that places that I, I was gonna go to, um, Tom. Regarding, let's, let's we'll stay above the inguinal ligament at this point, and then we'll go below the inguinal ligament for some of our uh, diagnostic uh, purgatories. So, Tom, above above the inguinal ligament, what what is it that we need? If forget about, let's just pie in the sky. Don't think about. We can't find this out. What is it that you would want from a diagnostic viewpoint to tell you that some lesion in the iliacs? is really something you need to fix? Well, I think as Mark outlined, we all assume that the hemodynamics determines uh, the symptomatology. So something, uh, a metric through a diagnostic test that can be correlated with uh, significant reduction in venous flow. So we're talking about some, some flow dynamics. We're going to give up on any kind of pressure dynamics. Um, well, well, Raju is sort of, at uh, least to many people's satisfaction, prove that uh, they're not, it's not, not relevant. They don't seem to correlate. So I'm talking about how does the chemodynamics correlate, correlate with uh, an image either by IBIS or some manner to determine, as Mark uh, alluded to, what patients deserve treatment and what patients don't deserve treatment. All right, so, so Raghu, do, do we need uh, just a, a different, some different thing to hang our hat on? In other words, do we not have any data that we can get now that can tell us this is something that we need to fix? No, are we just missing a, a, a data point? Because yeah, what we're trying to do with what Tom and, and, and Mark said, 
you're trying to put into some algorithm just the data points that we collect now. Would you like a different data point collected that could help you even more? Well, the data point is something like FFR in the arteries, right? So you want to make sure that that stenosis is relevant. Um, granted, Raju's work um, is seminal, but needs to be reproduced and becomes, it seems to be quite hard to reproduce that. And the second part is, you know, when these stenosis, when the iliac vein is, um, a stenosis is associated with other issues, such as, you know, gonadal vein reflux, such as um, nutcracker syndrome. Any of the things that we do, um, Steve, other than the handful of acute DVTs associated with um, stenosis, iliac vein compression, do we really have, I think like Mark said and Tom said and you said, we're in the purgatory. We need a lot more information about which ones to fix when. It's not just the percent stenosis, but once we have figured that out, we need to assess, you know, which one needs to be fixed first and what is the treatment algorithm? We don't know anything. I mean, we keep talking to each other um, in your Venus symposium, you know, in the, in the expert Venus forum, we talk about these type of things, but it's all, what are you doing? What should I be doing? That kind of stuff. But this is, you know, not even, uh, level two or level three evidence, right? So uh, there's a lot need to be done. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's easy to decide when someone has a swollen leg or a ulcer that's not healing, you've done everything right. else, had a 85%, you know, post uh, compression with post-robotic changes, that's easy. Or they have a mildly swollen leg and they have a 1% compression, that's easy maybe not to, but it's that gray area. So Manu, when you wrestle with the gray areas, what pushes you into one direction or the, or the other? Whether you treat the disease or not, what pushes you to say, hey, I think we need to fix this or we don't need to fix this? Well, for me, you know, I work closely because I'm in private practice and you guys have the luxury of being in big hospital systems. And so for me, the patients that I see in private practice, you know, I'm in that purgatory in that gray zone where I may see a patient with recurrent varices in the lower extremities and you know recurrent ulcers. So yes, those patients who have recurring disease, they're pretty easy to say. You know, there's something proximal going on. Let's investigate it. Um, we have IVIS access at the hospital, which is great for our, our patient population. Um, but again, those patients are really easy. It's those patients that have the pelvic pressure the pain, um, they may have some gonadal vein involvement and, you know, you just don't know at the end of the day if they're going to get better by intervening or they're not going to get better. Um, and personally, I can tell you anecdotally that in our practice, the patients that do have gonadal vein embolization here locally, um, we've probably had in the 10 years that I've been in practice, we've had probably a dozen patients and they feel better. So that makes me feel better that they're feeling better um, from a symptomatic standpoint. Um, but again, you, I have a ton of those gray area patients that I don't know if necessarily they're going to be better with an intervention proc with proximal venous disease or not. Um, and they're not sure either. And also patients are not sure if they want to undergo the risk 
and possibly not have any benefit and just magically have been embolized or have a stent. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main thing to take out of this is that we've all been chasing, because that's the data we can get, we've all been chasing anatomy mm -hmm. and, and we haven't been chasing other things like hemodynamics or, or, or something else. And I don't know what that's something else and that's why we're still in, in purgatory, but, but somebody who's smarter than, certainly smarter than me, can maybe come up with something else that can better predict who's gonna get better and who's not gonna be, get better. Some, some global Venus index or whatever the hell it is. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, and, and Steve, I don't think, to be honest with you, I don't think that's coming. And I think the problem is we've become too much in everything we do, not just Venus disease, but everything too much focused on imaging diagnosis that we've lost the ability to be clinicians. Uh, you know, and, and I use the example of when I was a medical student at a great cardiology professor, where we'd walk around the ward and he had a pocket full of straws and would tape a straw to everybody's fourth or fifth intercostal space looking for an S3 with the straw, which was a really cool diagnostic test because you could see it and show the medical student. But it was completely, it was a great thing to know, but it was meaningless without the clinical context of what, the pa what was bothering the patient. And I think that's the real problem is we've as a field, lost the ability to be clinicians um, and, you know, put it all together with the patient's history, their physical findings, you know, and, and we've we just become too dependent on imaging um, without losing the ability to be clinicians. And we need to get away from that, I think. No, and, and I agree. Steve, if I may add to that, uh, anatomic lesion percentages also drives inappropriate behavior. Um, it's not uncommon in my practice to see bilateral iliacs stented with a report that says greater than 50% stenosis in patients with lymphedema. So um, it, it done obviously elsewhere. So I, I, if, if we, on the other hand, would have physiologic metric um, along with clinical judgment, but it's, it's kind of hard to... Um, um, tell physicians to be doctors, right? Um, <laughs> because, because it's like telling people to go back to medical school, like, you know, Mark is saying, it's, it's hard. Um, we might have every diagnostic possible, but unless, you know, we are those physicians and uh, don't cross the line of doing stuff to patients as opposed to for patients, you know, um, mm -hmm. it's going to be hard. Well, and yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Yeah, and I think in vein disease, I mean, Tom, you know, you, you've been around, I've been around a little bit less than you, but you and I have been around quite a bit as, as has Mark. And I mean, I honestly, when I see a vein patient, I like they bring in their imaging and stuff. I don't even look at it before I speak to them. Because first I want to decide, are their symptoms venous or not venous before I go anywhere else to, to look at imaging. So Tom, I agree. Well, I agree. Uh, you know, I spent a year uh, with uh, the late Sir Norman Browse, and then uh, Kevin Bernard, who became professor in his place. And the British really emphasized, as Mark tried to put, uh, point out, working with the patient and not jumping to the tests. You know, typically in the United States, you could make ward rounds as some of these British surgeons did with me. And 
in the United States, they wouldn't even touch the patient. They'd be looking in the chart, looking at the laboratory test, rather than hearing the patient and examine him. And it's particularly important in venous disease and lymphatic disease. You can make the diagnosis of lymphedema if you're experienced by just examining the, uh, the patient and looking at the characteristic findings. Yeah, no, no, we, that we all, we all agree on. I mean, and I think talking to the patient for sure. Now, speaking about talking to the patient, sometimes we get into this dilemma uh, with quote, acute DVT. And you try and find, talk to the patient and decide, is this acute? Is it something they have significant enough symptoms that I'm consider intervening? Or is this too old and their symptoms may not be significant enough that I need to intervene? So I think one of the other venous purgatory things, and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this, is not just from history, and I, but some other way of aging a thrombus. That do we need that now that we have about eight or nine different ways to take care of acute thrombus? Do we need a way to really tell us exactly how old this thing is? Because we know after we get to a certain period of time, something's not going to work um, and we're wasting our time and putting the patient at risk. So I want to talk a little bit about the thrombus aging. Um, Raghu, what, what do you think we need or can we, are we good enough now to age the thrombus? So, so the classic um, medical school and vascular medicine training from now close to <clears throat> one and a half plus decades ago is that um, factor 13 converts the insoluble, the soluble fibrinogen into fibrin. So 13 was 13 days. So two weeks is, you know, what we thought acute becomes non-acute at that point. But slowly, as you know, uh, with the duplex technology, um, as you know, when we look at um, the clot appearance and whether it looks homogeneous or heterogeneous, um, whether it looks scarred down, our thought process has changed, right? We still see patients in our own clinics where uh, we get consoles for um, patients anticoagulation is not working because three months out, the clot still looks acute. So um, I think each patient is different. Each, each person's um, uh, clotting cascade is different. Um, it is ultimately, again, boiling down to those that, that aspect of us being clinicians and doing the right thing for the patient at that point, I think. Um, it is, it'd be nice to have a cookbook, um, you know, check boxes, Steve, but I don't think that is possible. The, the number of venous duplexes and, you know, other duplexes that I read and number of patients I see who come in with either anticoagulation failure diagnosis or concern for other issues that their anticoagulation is not working based on the appearance of the thrombus even three months out, sometimes even five months out. Um, so it's, it's hard and I think it all should be dependent on um, the clinical aspects of the patients at that point, as opposed to um, how the clots age, what the clots age is. That's my two cents. Okay, but I, I no, and, and I agree with that, but what, I'm, what I was talking about, we have all these ways of removing acute thrombus, whatever we define as acute thrombus yeah. now, in a lot of different ways. 
And it's a pretty hot subject. And a lot of people are doing a lot of procedures, whether they're necessary or not. Uh, my idea was, is there a way that we can well, what I, what I tell my interventional partners is it looks acute on the duplex. That's exactly what I say. It still looks homogeneous. The vein looks enlarged. The demarcation around the vein um, is, is still gone, meaning you know how it is, the acute DVT. You don't see the demarcation of the vein. It's hazy around the edges as opposed to agent determinate and chronic. So if I see all of those, regardless of when I'm seeing the patient and the patient is symptomatic, I would still, you know, recommend, you know, having that clot removed, um, especially at the inflow point. Uh, now, granted, once they get into the uh, into the pelvis, obviously we do pelvic ultrasound too. You know that, Steve. Um, um, <clears throat> and uh, if the vein um, is clearly homogeneous in the external iliac and at least, you know, at the common uh, iliac where we can clearly see it, if we can, then that's an easy answer. Uh, but otherwise, if it looks, it looks heterogeneous on duplex. Uh, and, and if I think that it, the patient would be best served with anticoagulation and perhaps um, uh, treating the vein as a chronic, um, um, uh, uh, you know, vein treatment, I would just wait uh, after anticoagulation. That's the way I do it. Tom, Mark, or Manu, anybody familiar with, um, you know, aging of the thrombus with uh, their MR, IVUS, things like that, to give us a better idea? I think, is it Stephen Black who's doing some work on yep. that? Right? Yes. Steve is doing, yes. Yeah. But I, but, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Tom. Uh, I was just make the comment is nowadays in the treatment paradigm, many of these patients aren't getting to you because they're being taken care of in the ER and being put on factor 10A inhibitors, and they never get to see a vascular surgeon or a vascular medicine doctor. Uh, that would be my first point. I think that uh, one could be able to age the clot is... Uh, hinted at before by the echo reflectivity of the clot and also the size of the vein and the connectivity to the walls. That could give you some rough ideas of the age, but I'd be interested in Mark's opinion because that is the home, Seattle is the home of ultrasound. They've done a lot of work in that area and I'd be curious what he has to say about ultrasound uh, criteria for at least telling you a clot is two weeks old versus two days old. Thanks for the question, Tom. I think, you know, there was some interest in, in particularly looking at sort of the elastic properties of, of vein walls and, and, and the dynamic uh, motion of vein walls in acute or chronic. And, and unfortunately, that really never went anywhere. Um, and I, I think sort of the same goes, you know, you can particularly tell if, if a clot's brand new if it's very echogenic versus very old if it's echolucent, but in between it's sort of a guess. And, you know, I, I guess I don't, to answer Steve's questions, I'm not sure I see a lot of value in, in thrombus aging because at the end of the day, you're going to sort of look at, if I see a patient who's three weeks out, which is not uncommon that they get managed, as Tom was saying, with a 10A inhibitor and they're beyond the 14-day interval, and, and sort of what I do is, is very dependent on the individual patient, because I think, in, you know, if, if it's 14 days out and, you know, they have no inflow, um, uh, 
you know, I, I think we've gotten to the point where we're pretty good at getting, you know, managing chronic occlusions of the common external and common femoral veins. It, it really comes down to the inflow. And I'm just not that convinced. And I think both the track trial and the Venus registry 20, decade, 20 years ago really suggested we're not that good in establishing inflow with thrombolysis. On the other hand, the body is pretty good at, at reestablishing inflow over time. And you may have to wait nine, 10 months um, um, to get good inflow to your stents. But we're, we're really, you know, it'd be great if we didn't have to manage it. But, but I guess the message is it comes down to looking at the patient's whole anatomy and thinking of the long term over the next year, how am I going to manage this patient? And when it comes down to it, you know, really the critical determinant of everything is, is inflow to the groin. And is our lytics going to help you get more inflow to the groin to keep a stent patent or, you know, and, and so I think you have to look at each individual patient a little bit differently as to what their anatomy is and what your strategy is over the next year. Okay, and that's why in pur we're in purgatory because we can't give people the the answer, and that's the point about this. So that's that's an area of purgatory. Manu, but do you do you do you see any value in the MR, Steve? I think the only value is when you're not sure of the age. The patient says my leg just started swelling, you know, a week or two ago. And then you get in there and it's really, looks like it's been much longer and you really can't do anything uh, thromboly you know, with thrombolysis or, or mechanically. And then, then you turn them into a chronic and then exactly what Mark said, you watch them for another, um, you know, six, nine, 10 months or whatever and see where they're gonna go symptom-wise. That, that's all, I, I'm just a little concerned that with the, of all these newer devices that people will not think as much well as we were just talking about. Talk, listen to the patient and can we age it correctly instead of just taking somebody to do a procedure and not uh, really getting good results and putting them at some risk. Now, Manu, I want to go below the groin now, below the inguinal ligament. Do you treat spider veins? Yes. Okay. I do. Good. I think most of us treat spider veins here. <laughs> I want to know, Manu, I think that this is an area where we are in such purgatory for a long time. <laughs> why, why can't we get good results? What is it that we need to get really good? Listen, you know, we all want to see some, some juicy 85% non, you know, uh, nivel lesion of the iliacs. We know we're going to put a stent in there and that person's going to get good. You see some woman that comes in or man that comes in with these little spider veins and you are like thinking, all right, how am I going to set their expectations? Because I don't have good technique. I don't have a great answer. I'm still in purgatory. What is it? What do we need? I don't know. I mean, I feel like we get some really nice results. I think the the unfortunate, I mean, there was a really nice study that came out of Europe where they did a combination of using an NDAG laser with sclerotherapy. And I, I believe they used polydocanol and that combination was actually better, uh, had better results when in, used in combination rather than just using sclerotherapy injectable and or just laser only. Um, and so I think you can get some decent results, but I think it's really important to set expectations for patients clearly early on. 
um, being able to handle any post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that you may see, especially in patients who have a little bit of a darker pigmentation, um, be able to address those early on. Um, I, I, unfortunately, you know, this is another purgatory area where, you know, I had a patient who has horrible staining. She is half African-American, half Puerto Rican. You know, we diluted the Sotradecol as much as I could uh, down to 0.15%. And, you know, she's still stained, you know, and not, not everybody is going to do that, but you're going to have some of these ones that are, you know, you just want to rip your hair out and be like, ah, uh. <laughs> so, no, I mean, so I think, yeah, this is my yeah. question. I mean, Tom, don't you think for years this has been like the dirty little one of the dirty little secrets in in uh, vein care? Like people always say, I get these great results. Nobody's willing to admit like it just didn't turn out as good as I really would have wanted. Yeah. Well, I, I totally agree, and it's a it's a great pick for purgatory because uh, both the patient and the doctor are are burning burning there. But uh, one thing that Manu said is extremely important is setting the expectations of the patient. And essential to that is taking a photograph of what the spider veins are before you treat them. And then the patient can see that and look back. Yeah, there is a little improvement. I think there are certain technical tricks that are important uh, is using uh, dilute STD 0.1% using a large volume syringe rather than a small syringe so that you don't develop high pressure within the, the little capillary and blow the blood out through the capillary. Those are some little things that I've learned over the years. You know, certainly I haven't done any in four to five years, but uh, I felt that I was in purgatory when I was doing them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark, Mark, why, why are we still doing sclerotherapy for veins? Shouldn't we have another way of taking care of these spider veins? Should we be able to like give somebody a pill and then shine a light over their veins? And ask him when the last time he did a spider vein. <laughs> Probably last week. I mean, I, I actually really like sclerotherapy and, and mm -hmm. do a moderate amount of it. I, I like to do it. I think it's a personality driven thing. And what's frustrating to me is that sometimes it does work really well, but other times it doesn't. And, and you know, trying to figure out, because, uh, you know, theoretically it's controlled, it's the same operator doing the same thing roughly on every patient. But I, I think that's part of the purgatory of it is the responses can be very different. As, as Manu was saying, you know, some patient who you just wouldn't, you, you can't control the pigmentation, others you can't control what your clearance rate is. And I, I think that's the purgatory. And sure, it'd be awesome if there was a better way um, to do it, but I don't have that answer for, you know, and maybe it is, you know, you know, it, it's unfortunate in that because of, uh, you know, it's sort of not being a life or limb threatening problem. I don't think there's a lot of research going on as to, you know, what could be done to influence the, the course of aging and, um, being a woman and those things that that contribute to progression over time but you know that that may be the ultimate answer but I don't know how much research is going on in that area maybe Raju does are you studying that in your uh, laboratory in Ohio <laughs> no <laughs> this is not on the like you said Mark it's not really on the forefront. it's not on the radar yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so so great. So we're going to still be in purgatory, according to all of us. We've got nothing to offer to get out of it for spider veins. Raghu, I want to ask you this. Why are we still ablating or getting rid of the saphenous vein reflux? Why are we not just treating the varicosities? Because it's easy and cheap. Okay, that's an honest and you and, 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 and you get paid for. I mean, don't don't you want to study? No, I know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I I do. I mean, absolutely. Fix the valves. It's if if that's possible. But there 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 is a there is a time point uh, in the natural history, though, Steve, where the um, vein is just too big, right? No, but I'm going the other way. I mean, I mean, Tom, just should we have a study where all you do is take care of the varicosities on patients? and see and leave the saphenous alone, no matter what size it was. Not, I'm not talking about what Pitaluga is doing and saying, you know, when it's this small and you have a, I'm talking about, do you feel by measuring quality of life that you'd get the same results a year or two or five years down the road if all you did was take care of the varicosities and almost never touch the saphenous? Well, now you're touching on what's the natural history of venous disease a subject dear to my heart. And we don't cure venous disease. As my good friend, uh, Kevin Bernan said, it's like treating dental caries. You have to come back periodically and get touch-ups and taking your approach of uh, addressing the varicosities rather than a presumed source of the varicosities is a reasonable approach. Uh, and some people do that for symptomatic C2s. Uh, as a, a matter of treatment and wait for them to come back to treat the great saphenous vein. But, you know, when you do an ablation uh, at, at, uh, at four or five years, 30% of those patients are going to have recurrence. Yeah. I mean, you wrote the paper comparing the recurrence rates on stripping versus you know, yeah. ablation. The recurrence is the same. It's just the mode of action is different. And exactly. So, Mark, why don't we just remove the varicosities? You know, Steve, I think that's an entirely reasonable approach. And the, the problem is, is we need a study comparing the two. Um, you know, you, you, I, I personally, I, I, I believe some of Nikos's work and others that varicosities start in the, um, the distal tributaries that become varicose and as the venous reservoir increases, the saphenous vein comes in, becomes incompetent. And I believe some of Paul's data that, you know, 40% of those will become competent again if you remove the reservoir. But, you know, to, to, to entirely change a treatment paradigm, we need a trial looking at, um, you know, the five-year results of phlebectomy first versus ablation first. And I, I, I definitely think that phlebectomy first or might might be a reasonable alternative. Yeah, you know, the problem is right now it's hard to get paid for it. That's yep. the so, so, so Steve, we do have data in that respect, right? Yeah. Chiba and asphalt um, from Europe, right? Um, it never took off for the last point that Mark made because. You know, A, you don't get paid for it. B, that's not an instant result, instant gratification for our patients that, you know, generally have that expectation. Um, so I think those um, are the important reasons to remember um, why 
we may not be doing uh, um, the varicosity uh, phlebectomies as opposed to uh, treating the saphenous veins. I mean, the only thing indirectly we have, one of the things we have is in Rasmussen's data comparing all the various yeah. modalities. The one thing that everyone had in common, except for the scleral people, because they was that they were, they were allowed to do concomitant phlebectomies. And as we all know, the quality of life measurements and everything was basically the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm indirectly saying, believe me, I'm not, I would rather ablate a saphenous than go picking out veins. It's much more satisfying. I agree with you. But that was the commonality between all those different uh, subgroups was that they had their varicosities treated also. So, and, they, and they were allowed to treat them if they had missed some when they came back, they had another bite at the apple when they do some sclerotherapy in those trials. So yes, we're in purgatory. And, and until the payment paradigm changes, I agree with you guys. We're, we're not taking out the varicosis before we're doing an ablation. Um, yeah, which is, is sad because it, there, there ought to be a, because I, I, I think the Paul Pinaluga's data for what it is, is, is pretty helpful. I mean, I think it, because we, I mean, you see the patient with the three millimeter, you know, very low, you know, very low velocity reflux and big tributaries. And you know that taking out that saphenous vein, you're going to have to do it to make the patient better, but you know, you don't need to do it. Right. Right. And that was, that was my point. So we're still in purgatory till we get a good, good study, but I think we're a little closer on this one than, than some of the other ones. Um, well, you know, the other thing that nobody really wants to mention, Steve, is that there is um, there are no industry dollars behind uh, taking care of the yep. tributaries first. No, I agree. Sure. You're absolutely, no, you're right. It, sooner or later, it all comes down to money. Mm-hmm. Ragu and Tom and maybe Manu also and me as well, for sure, and Mark. Um, ulcer care. Uh, Ragu, do we have it all wrong? We're chasing every single incumbent vein in that person's leg, and are we getting better healing rates than if we do everything else but, meaning great ulcer care, great compression, and everything else? Are the healing rates better in general? Well, do you want me to start with the ever uh, type of venous wounds? Uh, that are uh, that are small, three <laughs> three months old, uh, or are we talk? Go ahead. I'm sorry, you're saying talk something. Talk about those ever wounds. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, in 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 that particular population, uh, treating the saphenous vein, regardless of what technology you use, seems to help, right? Um, um, when combined with uh, spectacular, I may say, compression therapy, because if you look at the compression. Uh, use in the EVRA population, it was what, 87 or 90% in both groups, uh, early and late. So who knows whether that is, you know, the the recurrence rates being so low in EVRA and treatment uh, um, of, uh, I'm sorry, closing and healing rates of ulcers being so high is just attributed to the early ablation or a combination of small size, you know, uh, early ulcers and good compression therapy was all um, uh, important, which, you know, in my practice, that's, that's uh, 
what we do, right? We all do this. And, you know, you have the SBS AVF guidelines that the compression doesn't stop after the ulcer healing, correct? So um, that patients know right away that, again, setting up those expectations that they're not getting these procedures and the ulcer healed, um, uh, whatever vein procedures it is, whether it's uh, opening up the iliac vein or uh, treating the saphenous reflux or subulcer plexus uh, uh, foam sclerotherapy, whatever that is, they need to understand that uh, uh, they're stuck with uh, compression long-term. Um, and I don't know if we have good data for that, but at least I can quote the SPS ABF guidelines that you guys were on. Yeah, but that's top <laughs> market, now you're, you're, that's for sure. But talk about the top. It's been a long time since we've revised these guidelines and, um, and, and the thoughts about managing ulcers has certainly changed since the guidelines are written. Um, should we not emphasize as much treating the dysfunctional veins and emphasize something else more to improve ulcer healing? Well, I think first of all, venous ulcers are a very heterogeneous population, I think. As mentioned before, the size makes a huge difference. It's, and I'm focusing on ulcer healing, not ulcer recurrence. Um, so duration of the ulcer, size, and several other factors uh, play a role. The thing that I focus on is the condition of the deep system, uh, wh whether you can treat the superficial system and expect a good result. The EVER trial, which, as mentioned earlier, dealt with very small ulcers and of short duration, less than three months. Uh, even in that trial, they showed a difference in the extent of reflux, which is a little mythical, uh, either total or segmental. Uh, the other thing that we found in looking at the patients that we've studied over the years, both in London and here, is the type or cause of deep venous reflux plays a huge role. If it's not post-thrombotic caused, then it does better than, the, uh, than would the patient with the post-thrombotic. And we show that in an early venogram study published in the Lancet. And then Glavisky's uh, SEPS registry showed a very definite a difference in uh, cumulative ulcer healing between post-thrombotic deep venous disease and standard reflux. So it's very heterogeneous. To go back to your, your original question, yeah, you can do surgery, but you got to provide adequate compression and wound care. I would say one other thing is that a, the lymphatics and the predilection to infections play a big role in this. We presented a paper at the New England Vascular Surgery that showed about 9% of our C6 patients uh, were admitted to the hospital for infection. And once they had an infection, 50% recurred with another infection. And then when you compare the metric of ulcer-free days, which is really the best economic uh, metric, i.e. in a year, how many days did that patient need treatment there was a big difference between those who had infections and those that did not, irrespective of the other factors. Yeah. What, what is it? I mean, there's compression, it's got, but there's got to be stuff we don't know about what's happening at the wound level, at the micro, you know, that whole level, the, the whole 
I mean, the skin is the end organ that's damaged. We, right. I think we're, we still don't know what's happening there. We, you know, we measure what's there, but we don't know how to modulate it that well. What do you do for your I know. And Steve, you know, you can take it a step beyond that, even beyond the wound. I mean, you, 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 all, you all take care of patients every day. You have huge giant varices that have been there for 35 years and their skin is perfect. And the patient with uh, uh, a bad iliofemoral DVT that 10 years later, their skin is perfect. And, and you know, the, the venous disease and the hemodynamics are a necessary factor, but they're not a sufficient factor, you know, and there's something there has to be something genetically different in a patient who has bad venous disease and gets an ulcer versus, you know, the majority of patients with bad C2 disease who never get an ulcer. And, you know, it gets, it's, it's the opposite of, um, the opposite of the telangiectasias where it may not be a big problem and there's no research going on about it. I don't think enough is being done as to, as to saying, you know, at a, genetic level, what is it that makes people get ulcers and how do you fix that? Yeah. Well, it's one well-defined uh, racial ethnic uh, genetic connection, which is the Viking gene, which is uh, people of uh, Celtic heritage can inherit this gene that has to deal with iron metabolism. And they had a, a definite uh, predilection for venous ulcers. Several studies, including one that we did show that uh, non-white have a susceptibility to venous ulcers that don't heal well, irrespective, at least on uh, superficial metrics, of access to healthcare. So there's definitely something genetic involved. All right, so that's something else we don't know. Now, that moves me into my next area of purgatory is, and maybe more the ragu and, and Manu, you can talk to us about this, we spoke about we compress, we take care of the, the pathology. Why don't we have good drugs to prevent progression of disease or to prevent disease itself? Should, we, should that be our goal, to cure vein disease from a medical side? Nanu. I mean, I think that would be great if we could do that. I mean, we just spent uh, all this time talking about it. everybody's so heterogeneous in their presentation. You know, we have patients with C2 disease. Some of them are in excruciating pain with, you know, horrible clinical severity score versus somebody else who's got a different clinical severity score. I mean, it would be great if we had medications to um, cure venous disease. That would be amazing. Um, well, you know, we use a. Aren't you a phobologist? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, I, I fortunately don't have venous disease, but I think if there was a way that I didn't have to worry about passing it on to my children or, you know, grandchildren, I think that would be, if we could even lessen the severity of the disease progression in some form or manner, that would be amazing. Yeah, um, no, I'm kidding you. We don't want, we really don't I want know. to out of a job, but I understand. Right. Uh, Ragu, what are your thoughts about uh, something medically to, like Manu is saying, prevent progression, prevent getting it? Should yeah, we to, to, to a certain extent, and maybe related to inflammation, um, I wish we had a University of Michigan guy here, uh, or ladies, one of those. Uh, um, um, 
uh, on the panel uh, to answer this question, but uh, I don't, I, I, we don't know enough about the presentation and pathology of why this progresses, right? I mean, Tom's, Tom talked about uh, natural history, Mark talked about it. What, what aspect of venous disease do we not want to progress? You know, I mean, is it the edema? Then is it the uh, uh, discomfort? Is it the spider vein appearance? What is it that we don't want to progress? Because there are some drugs that, you know, may help with um, horse chestnut or whatever. Some of my patients take that um, and they feel better. Their venous claudication improves. Um, Steve Dean uses a lot of that. Um, and, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, I, why do we see the, it, to add to uh, Mark's descriptions, why do we see atrophy blanch ulceration patients never go through that C3 process where they don't have edema, their legs are skinny. Uh, why does that happen? So we do, we don't the entire majority of venous disease is purgatory, I guess. You know, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I, I, so I don't know which specific um, uh, aspect of venous disease needs to be uh, challenged pharmacologically uh, to be able to have that target drug. Uh, if if I had to take my um, uh, Vegas bet, if you would, would be inflammation, but um, anti-inflammatories uh, have not, general non-steroidal anti-inflammatories have no effect on venous disease. No. So I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so, so Mark. I use a lot of vascular as well. And yeah. vascular works great, you know, for patients, but, you know, they still have varicose veins. Right, but you're <laughs> the symptoms. I'm talking about before... Right talking about identifying people at risk, whether it's genetically at risk, like Tom was saying and, and stuff, and then having something you can give them to decrease their progression. Mark, should we try to do this or just forget it because we'll be out of a job? Well, you know, Steve, I think it's probably a stepwise process. I, I don't think you're gonna randomly come up with a drug that, uh, um, cures venous disease. On the other hand, if you develop an understanding of uh, the genetics and the pathways involved and how you can impact those and you would develop, um, you know, something that was number one, easy to take, that is not a four time a day drug, or it was a once a day drug that had no side effects and was easy as taking 81 milligrams of aspirin a day, it might, might work. But I think we're a long way from that because I think, first of all, we have to understand what the pathways are involved. And I think that's also problematic in that there's probably more than one involved. Um, you know, you look at some of these uh, single nucleotide polymorphism studies where there's, you know, a bunch of them involved. It's not just one thing. And, and how do you figure that out? So I, I think it'd be great if you could come up with that, but I think it sort of has to be approached in a logical manner. And I think there's some early work done on some of the genetics of it and things, but we're kind of a long way from a, a target drug. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, the, and obviously the thrust of this podcast was not to make all of us look like we don't know anything and have no answers to anything. But I wanted the people who are listening to appreciate, we probably don't know as much as we think we know and we need to know a, a lot more. So while I entitled this Venus Purgatory, Maybe it should have been the podcast with all of the questions, but none of the answers. 
Um, you know, but Steve, you, you could also say that is what is so great about venous disease. Is, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it is, there are way more questions than there are answers. And for people who are, you, you know, clinically or intellectually interested in it, I mean, that this, this is where, this is where you want to be. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just yeah. interesting questions that we don't have answers to. No, and no, and I agree with you. And that, and I think all of us on the panel, we find exactly your your sentiments. But it's just fun. It's just fun to be somewhere where everybody doesn't know everything, and and you got to think, uh, you know, and ponder once in a while. So I mean, I want to I want to thank all of you for for being part of this. It just you know brought up food for thought, so to speak. And um, we'll see if ten or twenty years from now, someone will be hosting a podcast that that has all of the answers to the questions that. That we asked, but um, I think we all kind of doubted. So I want to want to thank you very much uh, for being here, and um, let's keep thinking and understanding what we don't know, so we can try and figure it out. So thank I you. you were going to give us absolution to get us out of purgatory, Father Elias. <laughs> you're out of purgatory. I give you this. We're we're done. So when you hang up, you're out of purgatory. You're back in reality. <laughs> I, I had my vaccine yesterday, so we're out of purgatory. <laughs> oh, good for you. Well, your reality is heaven. That's your decision. But we're out of purgatory now. So thanks a lot, guys. Uh, Thank for you. Being part of this. We hope you enjoyed today's Vein podcast in association with Radcliffe Vascular. We aim to bring you important topics from the vein world, either topics that we ourselves feel are important or you, our listeners, feel are important. So review us on your favorite podcast app or send your thoughts, comments, and questions to podcast at Radcliffe with an E-group.com. That's podcast at Radcliffe-group.com. You can also register to access newsletters, videos, and peer-reviewed journal articles. Thank you. Glad you listened. This is Dr. Steve Elias, and we'll see you on the next Bain podcast. Bain.